morning, Baraka. This morning, um, one of the passages that Pastor Dow will be reading from is Acts chapter 20. That's what we're going to read together. <clears throat> so if you would open up your copy of the Word of God to Acts chapter 20, we'll be reading verses 26 through 30. Acts chapter 20. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Paul is leaving the Ephesian church and he's talking to the Ephesian elders as well as the church and he's giving them a little history of how the, he, the work has been done it has been well accomplished he's not bragging he's just saying that he has done his work and so this is as he's speaking to the Ephesian church. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not failed, shunned, to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples to themselves. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning to you, church. It's good to see you from this direction for a change. All right. I see your faces. Good to see you. Good to have you here. Uh, I have an introduction before I have my introduction. So if this is maybe your first Sunday or if you have been a regular attender, uh, you can can pick up on this in, in either situation. I have planned a four-part series entitled Life in the Church. Now the scheduling and all is a little different than it has been and I was planning to do the first message and then suddenly it dawned on me I I have this disease which I prepare and I get things that things start happening and I, I change plans with my message. So my first two truths, I actually I had four of them. I had four truths I was going to stake in the ground with regard to life in the church. And I considered these particularly pertinent for the time in which we are in. I'm not oblivious to that. And so I was going to do the first two, but the, this morning I said, I just need to do the first one the very first one. That will actually be merciful to you. And I could have gone way too long if I had tried to put in the other. So I'm going to direct your attention in just a moment. If you'd like to go ahead and get there, please do so. Then we're going to pray. But I want you to look at, go to 1 Timothy. 
1 Timothy, and I'll explain the placement of the text and the subjects we're going to, the issues we're going to deal with. I'll explain that in a moment. But if you go to 1 Timothy in chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. Now these verses, this, the, the, these represent the purpose of the writing of the book of 1 Timothy. Appreciate them for, for several reasons, one of which is this, that Paul's writing to his understudy. He's probably has, he's been released from that imprisonment that you're familiar with in the book of Acts, and he moves out into another missionary journey, various stopovers, and then eventually he's going to go back to Rome, he's going to be put in prison, and Nero is going to take his head off. And before he does that, he writes 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy, Paul writes, because Timothy's been left in Ephesus. And Timothy has this massive task of getting order in the churches and getting Timothy's feet planted firmly on the ground of truth and roots deeply embedded in who God is. We'll explain that as we go along. And so this first uh, epistle to, the Timothy, to Timothy is like a church manual. It's like what I have in the glove compartment of my car. When I, oh, and do I ever need it in this digital age? What's that mean? Uh, and so this is a manual for Timothy to give order and direction in the church and supremely to get all eyes fixed on who God is. I, I don't, Ellis, did you pick out those little songs? Where's it? Where's Ellis? You picked those songs out. You were on the money. Those, those really fit well. We had a brief uh, communication, uh, texting it was, about what I was going to do. So those songs were really wonderful prepping for what we're going to be doing this morning. Thank you for that. And so here we are with this passage in 1 Timothy. It represents the entirety of the book. This is not the beginning of a series on 1 Timothy, though that would be with a, with a, lot, a lot of merit. This is going to be on selected verses in chapter 6. Now, if you, if you forgot any of that, just follow with me. I'm going to read this passage, make a couple of comments about it, and then we're going to pray. We do need to pray. So, are you with me now? 1 Timothy 3 and verses 14 through 16. At this point in the list, it seems like be in a book of six chapters, he just in the middle of it gets to the point of the, of the, of the epistle. <laughs> That's the way he works. And he's, he's spoken of his grace, of the grace of God in Paul's life. He has immediately addressed the importance of getting the right kind of leadership in the church. And he goes through that famous section about here, the elders are to be this, the deacons are this. And then he says, I hope to come to you soon. <laughs> he gets very personal. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. That's the way the, new, uh, the English Standard Version translates, but behave, it reminds me kind of like a class of eight-year-olds and you're trying to get them to quit uh, messing around. It's how to conduct yourself, how, how you do things, how do you function, what's the order, that kind of thing. Behave yourself in the household of God. He's speaking of the local church here, which is the church of the living God. Don't let that adjective be lost on you. I'll get back to it a little later when we get into the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy. A pillar, 
By the way, not a pillow, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And with some poetry, which is an early part of an early Christian hymn, which just packages it up, everything. I love it. I've memorized it. So it comes to my mind readily. He was manifested in the flesh, the incarnation of Christ, vindicated by the Spirit, the exaltation of Christ, seen by angels going into his heavenly session before with God the Father, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, let's pray together. We have some matters. Uh, pulpit prayers are very important, and we kind of want to come together, and if you will, just kind of put a harness on that mind. We all have to do this so we don't start thinking about did we get everything ready for lunch. But uh, let's come together and let's pray. There's some important matters we need to bring to the Lord. So are you with me? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Oh, Lord, thank you that you're a father. Oh. You look upon us as your children. We are your children. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. Yes, we do. Thank you for the gift of eternal life, forgiveness of sin, hope for the future. Thanksgiving, Lord, we give to you for uh, the confidence that we can have that you do all things well and that you ordain the straight and the crooked in our lives. You're sovereign. Thank you. Lord, I want to bring to you our nation. We're in trouble. You know better than we. We are in serious trouble. Lord, there are those who are trying to redefine us, remake us, bringing down and corrupting institutions that are time-honored and in many cases reflect your institutions for the human race. Oh, Lord, and I, I ask you with regard to this election on Tuesday. Lord, we'll trust you to give us the people that uh, could best serve the population, honor the Constitution of the documents of our founding fathers, but most of all, Lord, would have a sense of accountability, responsibility to you and your righteous moral order. We're disturbed, Lord, that we have many leaders we have an administration which makes public statements that are in utter defiance of your righteous standards. Lord, we, we, don't deserve, we don't deserve a better government, but we pray that you will put before us those who will honor your abiding moral law, which is for the good of the population, so that we may thrive, enjoy our freedoms, so the gospel can spread and go, not only at home and abroad, around the path, around around the entire world. Please, Lord. And Lord, I pray also for this time where we vote for a new slate of elders. Uh, hopefully all will remember to go to the boxes in the, in the room and get to that slate and make a wise choice. We need leaders at this time who will serve you faithfully, who will have your mind on matters. We need that. We need that wisdom. And we mustn't forget, Lord, I wouldn't want to forget those who are ill and not with us. Lord, there are those who are fighting cancer. And I pray for their keeper, caregivers as well, Art and Nancy. 
boast of them with mutual encouragements as Art fights his cancer. For Hal and Carol, Hal, having for some time now lost that eye and legally blind, and how he needs Carol, and thank you for the help that you've given to both of them recently. Keep them encouraged, joyful in you. And for Linda and Justin, Roundtree, oh Lord, do they do need so much uh, spiritual stamina and just encouragements and wisdom and how to communicate with the children and others. Keep them steady. And Lord, I also thank you that there is a shower this afternoon for Melissa Johnson. And I pray that her wedding don't recall at the moment when it is, but for those ladies who will gather and encourage her, may they do just that. And she will know that she has uh, your people around her who love her, who prepared her in their own ways, and that her marriage will be one that will exalt you. Now, Lord, as we come to this passage, this, these issues before us, Oh, may we run to you with all our thoughts, whether they be stray thoughts or good thoughts or somewhere in the middle. You'll sort them all out. And open our eyes now to see wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I, I, pardon me for just sounding so pedestrian about this, but just so you'll know where we're going, that... We have a, I have a series, and I'm going to pick it back up on November the 27th. So that's when the second part. Next Sunday, appropriately planned message on courage. It's going to be speaking on courage. Is it Courage Under Fire? That's the name of your book. But just about courage. It fits right in with what these issues raise to us in First Timothy and other places. And then Pat Perkins is going to be back on the 20th. And I'll be coming back, Lord willing, and continue this series. And I've been assigned another time in December because I'm going to have to have that to finish this series, the way it's looking now. Okay? All right. Now, what I want you to consider <clears throat> is what we need to do this morning. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and in verses 15 and 16. So look there, if you will. Uh, oh, my. Okay, I have to mention this. Try This is some kind of uh, functional clutter here, but uh, this is not clutter. I chose to do this for you this morning to, this is kind of for those of the younger generation, millennials and X, uh, Gen Xers and so forth, this is paper, and uh, there's an outline on it, and I chose not to do a PowerPoint. So if you could just give me some feedback, we don't, I'm not taking a referendum now, but uh, is, is this... Uh, helpful, uh, more so than a PowerPoint. Uh, I thought if you, at least you had some of the talking points here, we're not going to be dealing with the second part, just the first part. So, all right. With that said, uh, <clears throat> now, 1 Timothy in chapter 6. Now, let me read these verses <clears throat> and follow with me. And you're going to notice something here. If I, if I uh, had the time, I would read 1 Timothy in chapter uh, 1 and verse 17, because these are like two bookends in the book. Very, very important. <clears throat> and here, uh, let, me let me read the passage. I charge you in the presence of God. Now, obviously, 
Paul is coming to the conclusion of his letter. He's been speaking about the danger of false teachers. He's been addressing Timothy on the danger of being pulled and distracted by material things. And so here he pauses and he breaks out in this apostolic disease. They're called doxologies. <laughs> it just comes in the middle. He doesn't even finish the letter. Here it is. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And this is so important. Every word in this, I'll tell you exactly what happened while I got a little bit stalled out on this passage, is that there was just so much low-hanging good fruit on 1 Timothy 6, 16 and 17, I had to stop there. So that's why we're only going to do this. And reminds me of Mrs. Wilson's plum tree across the street when I was growing up is if you're going down to the park, to the bottom of the hill, you passed Mrs. Wilson's plum tree. It was a good one too. And so it could delay you getting down to the park because guys would stand out there and throw rocks up at it. And so would delay their trip. All right, just as an aside, I, the, plum tr the tree's got a lot of good fruit hanging on it. So I just, I, as early as this morning, things were lighting up. So with that said, I keep doing that, I won't get through. All right, but I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Why in the world does he bring up Pontius Pilate? Was he sort of some, was he a celebrity? No, what he's doing is focusing on Jesus Christ who stood before Pilate and gave that courageous declaration both in silence and in spoken word as to who he was and what the biblical record says about the person of Christ. When he goes forward to say the good confession, that is Timothy, which he's saying, you're going to preach the word. You've got to do your work as a shepherd. You've got to feed the flock. Keep to keep the commandment. To keep the commandment. Don't get distracted. Timothy, keep your eye on the ball. The ball is truth. You build up the church by the whole counsel of God. More of that coming later. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until, here's the incentive, the epiphania, the epiphany, the appearing of our Lord, gives his full name, Lord Jesus Christ. And he's speaking here of the fact that here, the sum total of all of the obligations that Timothy has in getting the church in order, the churches, probably house churches, there were probably about a quarter million people in Ephesus at this time. And probably they had just a number of these house churches. So here it is, laid out before him. Here's your incentive. Christ is going to be making his appearance. God's in control. He's sovereign. Stay with it. Stay with it. Which he will display at the proper time. God has a schedule. He who is, here he launches, he who is blessed and the only sovereign. If you mark your Bible, you circle that word only, the, the word monas. He's going to repeat it again. The only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor 
and eternal dominion. Amen. Now we're going to flay this a bit, and you have the major statements, points of truth that I want to bring to your attention. But let me just say, uh, insert another very personal word. I want to thank all of you who are here this morning. Thank you. These are difficult times. Um, there is a mix of things that we have to deal with, emotions and so forth. That's why, by the way, in this series, the next message is going to be on the passage that Ron read in Acts. He didn't know this before he read the, message, the text this morning, so I'm surprising him. That, uh, that it's going to be the, the, what the, the leaders, the church is to do, the whole counsel of God and the danger of false teaching, how it presents itself in our day. So that'll be one. And then we're going to do um, one on how to handle emotions. I've been looking at some things in 2 Corinthians. It can be very helpful here. Things like the anxiety, depression, grief. We're going to address that. And then if I, you know, that third message looks like it'll uh, final one be up in December. I'm going to deal with some eschatology. That's a theologian's word for Bible prophecy. I, I see it kind of breaking out right now, and it's not a bad thing, but we've got to be careful. Uh, enough said there. All right, let's come back to this text. We're going to be doing that in the future. Now notice, if you will, there are several issues that come up out of 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul tells Timothy in that, we are to take the church seriously because God owns it and lives in it. Don't let that get lost on you. Lives in it. And we are to take the church seriously because it's the place where truth is on display, both in presentation and in life, in the way we live. And we are to take the church seriously because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let it slip away. That's where he's going. Now come back to this. Let me say just a few words with regard to Paul's letter to Timothy, in addition to what I've already said. There were problems in the church. All churches have, for, since the beginning of the church in Acts, have had problems. You just go through the books of the New Testament and just notice how in everyone, Paul's dealing in his epistles, as John's and Peter's as well, he's dealing with problems. They have problems with false teachers. They were seeking to seduce the congregation away, woo them away into error and pull them away from the gospel and the whole counsel of God. Also, though we don't have time to go into this, this might intrigue you a bit, there seems to be a problem with regard to women in the church. Not that women were bad, but there was some, there was some uh, propaganda that was coming in that was kind of getting things out of sorts. And so how do women function in the congregation? That's part of it. And then, of course, and this is a biggie, qualified officers. How appropriate. You've got to identify what you think would be the appropriate, the right officers, the leaders, the elders of the church. So that's another issue that comes here. So Paul wants to encourage Timothy. And he wants them to understand something. You see, they were like a little island in a sea of, of emperor worship, paganism, like we're on an island. Have you thought of it that way? You increasingly think that way? That uh, I would think that we have, we're an island in a sea of just sentimental secularism. God is nowhere to be found or heard about. And if he is mentioned, it's always a twisted and perverted way. 
We're, we're like an island as a church. You imagine what it was like in that city. I've stood there, Beth and I did, and we looked out over the ruins of Ephesus. Oh, what an exciting time it was. But there's a lot of rocks. was left of houses and, and a library and a temple and so forth. But here they were in this city with all this deeply entrenched paganism around them. So he's, he's encouraging them, encouraging them. We need it. And he, he wants, to be, wants them to be alert to these uh, threats that face the church. Now, with that said, let's look at it. The very first thing that Paul launches on in this doxology, first thing, is the sovereignty of God. Here, the Psalms. You should really be prepped for this one. The sovereignty of God stabilizes us in the stresses and strains of life. It's not meant to just simply be some sort of uh, intellectual anesthetic. You know, that whatever will be, will be, that sort of thing. I mean, I've talked to unbelievers who believe that. I've, I've known one particularly every time I'm around, and they say, well, you know, what it, it's meant to be, it's meant to be. This is not just a case of rah, rah, rah. Oh, there's more to it than that. There's a lot of fruit hanging on this tree. Look what he says. The text says, which he will display at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign, that word, do not, Dunestes, power. That's what's behind that word, power. King of kings and Lord of lords. So here's the sovereign God. And by the way, it wasn't very far away from Paul's mind. He's thinking about it because here was this to the church, public enemy number one, who had hauled their families and friends off into incarceration and to be killed and harassing them and persecuting them. And guess what happened? God knocked him off his horse, fell on the ground. Jesus Christ appeared to him, making him ultimately the 13th apostle. And here he comes and he thinks, and he talks about this earlier on. Talk about God's grace in his sovereignty. Look at me. I'm an example of it. He showed mercy on me. Oh my, he said I was blasphemer, I was persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy. That's sovereignty of God in his own conversion. Now, here's, what's, here's what really comes out of this issue. Let me show you a few things, if you've got room to take note of them here. Timothy was not to let those who are opposing his work in Ephesus discourage him and stop him because he was not going to get any kind of support from his culture. Now, some of us have been modestly spoiled by a previous phase of our culture. We used to speak of, you know, we were sort of at the right hand of the culture, and there was some kind of, uh, of uh, nods of respect and so forth. Oh, forget that. That ship has sailed long ago. Now, we're not just tolerated. We're not tolerated. It's an intolerant attitude and hostility toward Christianity outright hostility all right steady as she goes and God has the absolute and final control over the entire universe all right take that truth pill and swallow it let that get in your system we're talking about God's power and absolute self-determination God is at work in carrying out his plan no matter how confusing and morally contradictory life becomes, 
We are to stay steady and strong. Now, we've got to be careful here. I'm going to put a little qualification in. Yes, God does his own actions. They're in accord with his choices. If you want to know what God's sovereign plan is for Tuesday, would you like to know in advance? Huh? You'll know on Wednesday. Okay, that's when you'll know. So we've got to be careful. Now, what I want to say is, that let, me, let me make a couple of other statements, and I want to be sure I get this point across. God has no equal. Well, you can even make a little, uh, little bit of a teaser out of it. What is it that you and I have seen that God has never seen? And the answer is, his equal. <laughs> We've seen our equals, but God has never seen his. And God can program our lives with the straight and that which is crooked, both. So just the fact that, here's the point that I want to make. I better rush to it before I forget it. Just because of the sovereignty of God and that we'll know what it is with regard to the election, we'll know what it is next Wednesday, but not before. We have to be careful that we don't start investing in the sovereign God as it unfolds unwise, unbiblical, wrong biblical judgments. You get me on that? Just because, got to say this in view of next Tuesday, just because whoever is elected, that doesn't mean that God's saying, hey, this is the best person on the block for this job, and I've just told you so. No, you don't know that. We wouldn't know that. I've been reading through Jeremiah. I'm wondering sometimes if I'm ever going to get through Jeremiah. Uh, it's about an average of two or three chapters at a time. And you know what really comes out in that? God even says of Nebuchadnezzar, he says, he's my servant. Do you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar? He was not a Sunday school teacher, I'll tell you that. And he, God used the, he used Babylon to spank Israel big time, take them out. And he used Babylon to spank Moab and Ammon and Edom. And he goes, Jeremiah goes to great lengths and saying what they're going to get. Bend over and take it. I'm taking you out, and here's my servant. Now, we're going to say, well, Nebuchadnezzar did that, and Babylon did that. That was, boy, they were righteous people. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. So, okay, is that enough of, of a caveat to help you so that you don't make that mistake? I've heard some folks make that mistake. They think because... Uh, you know, you make a decision, okay, you find it, well, that's, it's the sovereign God, uh, his sovereignty has been demonstrated, so therefore he's putting his approval on it. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. We've got further things to do. All right, let's move. God is in control, still thinking about sovereignty here. God is in control of all the affairs of the human race. Get this now. Human responsibility, positions of leadership, human government, our salvation, our birth, the circumstances of life, the wrong things other people do to us, the mistakes we make, the failures of other people, and the tragedies and pressures of life are all under God's control. Now, did I say that they were, well, that means they're all good and I just need to bite my lip and take it. Well, now, we do have some encouragement along this line. I don't want to leave you in a hole here. If we know as believers, only believers can know this. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. 
God can throw, you're making a chocolate cake and you may want to throw mud in it, but you're not going to get a better chocolate cake. But I'll tell you what God can do. He can take the chocolate cakes of life and throw some mud and other bad things in it and it's going to work for our good. You say, I can't figure that out. Good. (laughs) We humble ourselves before our infinitely wise and sovereign God and we'll trust him and love him more that we can't get everything figured, can't get God all figured out. So how then should we live? I'll say it again, and I'm going to say it a few other times. We've got some fierce cultural winds blowing against us. National institutions are being corrupted left and right. I'm just going to give you some teasers. I I wrote these down. I I thought, Howard, you shouldn't do this. You get off on these things. You'll be out in the weeds somewhere. But these are things that are pressing in, and we'll address them as we go along. And I will even, hopefully, in this message. We have got, we've got things that go all the way from victimology. Every, find your victim class. Oh, I got, okay, everybody's got to be a victim. So that way you've got authority. You've got uh, some kind of right to say what you want to say and do what you want to say. All right, we're dealing with that. COVID, oh, and it's left all kind of debris in its wake. I'm, we're still finding that one out. The sexual revolution. Equity, placing equality. Diversity, where we mistake visual diversity for what is value-laden diversity. Two different things, two different things. Wokeness, evolution. Well, it's been around since uh, Darwin, 1859, the origin of the species, but it just keeps, it keeps getting more muscular and more dogmatic in the assertions that are made. It's in everything, every school literature, all over the place. Defund the police. Socialism. Gender-approved pronouns. Okay, so I don't bump into these things. Well, I don't know. You can tell me. Are we in this area in some kind of a bubble or some sort? But I can tell you, one who does check things out as best he can, what's going on across this, this nation, we're in serious, serious trouble. And if you're a school teacher, if you're out there, if you're a school teacher, or if you, if you bake cakes, <laughs> whatever, somebody's going to be coming after you. There are probably, are, maybe already are, and you didn't realize it. But if you're wise, you've realized it. All right, let's go. Let's move to the next, next thing. In this doxology, that's what I'm squeezing. This is the next fruit dropping off the tree. God's existence assures us of his sufficiency for life and godliness. He says, who alone has immortality? Well, you think, well, what's he saying? God doesn't die. Oh, okay, I thought I knew that. Uh, Ponder this a little bit. Why does he need to say this to Timothy? That God is not subject to death. He's life. He's the giver of life. Well, let's think about what it means. It means that God has no needs and therefore depends on no one. Contradictory to some popularized Christianity about God that he cooperates with human beings and that we somehow supply him with what he's lacking. He doesn't need worshipers. God is, so, I'll be so glad when those saints get together on the Lord's Day or wherever they can because I'd just love to have people come and worship me. I just need this. 
He wants it. Glorifies him. He doesn't need helpers. Now, I'm gonna, don't misunderstand what I'm doing with these. I'm not saying we aren't to worship. I'm not saying that we aren't to be helpers in the work of God or defenders of God. But God doesn't need these things. That should be quite humbling. Because, you know, I may be displaced. I say, well, God, what are you going to do without me? I'm leaving a, it's not like that. Oh, I'm too full of football metaphors right now. I've got to avoid that. But it's, it's like that star player who gets hurt and he can't play again. Oh, no, we're sunk. Oh. Somehow the game goes on. Well, maybe life is telling us something that's much grander and greater. And what God's plan is, is that when he chooses to shut us down, he gives us a stroke or cancer or something catastrophic and we don't have the mobility and the, the, the opportunities that we were planning on and those seem to be kind of shriveling up and listen God is sovereign and he is the one who can accomplish his work but we will be his instruments we want to be his instruments so listen, listen to what is involved now? We, we've got to move along, and I want to go to this one. This incomprehensibility. You see that one? God's incomprehensibility sends us to his knowability. Now, why did I put it that way? Because I can say, well, if he's incomprehensible, why can I say anything about the incomprehensible? Because I'm incomprehensible. And if I'm incomprehensible, please give me some thoughts about incomprehensibility. No. It sends us to his knowability. We can know God. We can know about God. That's got to start there. And we can, we're to know God experientially. But God cannot be fully known by humans. He exists and he reveals himself. Thank God for that. How has he revealed himself? You know this. He has partially in nature, though it's obscured by the curse. He has revealed himself in the scriptures and ultimately he's revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But we can't comprehend the essence of God, not even in eternity, lest we think, well, when we die and go to be with the Lord, it's going to be an epiphany of that kind. Like, blah, wow, I know everything. This is great. I've always wanted to know everything. Forget that. <laughs> We're not going to become omniscient. We've got eternity to expand these brains without sin. What a pleasure jaunt that's going to be. Forever and forever learning and enjoying without having to cope with sin. Ah, oh, yes. So, here's what we know about what it means to know God. I just came across several passages. Here they are. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Job 1.17. Uh, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Isaiah 40, verse 18. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. John 17, 3. So here we are. This incomprehensibility, and you'll notice how the statement reads, who dwells in, in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. What's he doing here? Well, he's really taking light as a metaphor. He's taking it to the 10th or ultimate power that 
Light represents the absolute purity and holiness of God. We can't tolerate it. Like that burning bush thing. You know, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Or just the, any sense of the presence of God Almighty should smite us with an overwhelming sense of our own sinfulness. Like Isaiah, Isaiah. Woe is me, I'm undone. And he had that vision, just a vision, just a theophany. And he, his lips, and put the, he just realized his mouth, the things he said, wrong things he said, un, in, unfruitful things or whatever. So he recognized his own need. So here it is. To come to see God, oh, put this in. We got we to coordinate this with something. In Matthew chapter 7, 5, excuse me, in verse 8, finish this. For the pure in heart shall see God. Okay, let's, let's work with that just for a minute. See God, we told there the pure in heart. I think that what's coming across here in this, this powerful language that he's inapproachable light, God is absolute holiness without any impurity, any evil, any sin, any flaw. He's perfect in all his ways. This should have the corresponding effect upon us to the degree that we know God, aha, that we are conscious of, more sensitive to and conscious of sin. And that it throws us down in humility before God in our dependence on him. And, to, and, and with this corresponding responsibility, I need to pay attention through my life, I mean, I need some sanctified self-awareness. Am I tolerating attitudes and bad relationships that I could try to fix? I can do some things that I'm not doing. I'm ha I've, got some, I've got some routines and habits and things that they really need attention. I am before an incomprehensible God who is unapproachable and perfect light and holiness and it should have the effect upon me to work on my own sins. I, I remember so well, it's like vivid memory, when our first grandchild was born as Brennan, that's about 30 years ago now, and he was a preemie. He was one month premature. Okay, well, you know, Beth and I, we couldn't, we, we couldn't get up to Chattanooga fast enough. So we get up there, go to the hospital. Okay, you would have thought that we were getting ready to get suited up to go to Mars. It was something else. Uh, you, you know, we had this suit we had to put on of sorts. We had to take off, you know, watch, ring. We had to go through all this uh, special hygienic, these... Uh, soaps and what have you. And he had to put something on your head and make you look like you were a dishwasher. And, uh, and so it's just, it was, we look crazy. Well, <laughs> you know what? Because there had, to be this, there had to be this strict control of the environment. Well, we've been a little bit attuned to it because of where COVID's pushed some more than others. And I just can't just sashay into the presence of God with my life without any sense of Lord you're holy I'm not what's the Lord's prayer say our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name 
I, in, in recent times, I've gotten more sensitive. I'm trying to pray that every morning. I use the Lord's prayer as kind of my framework. Lord, I don't want to take anything away from your holiness. I don't want to misrepresent you. I don't want to give people an occasion to uh, uh, minimize you, discredit you. I, I don't want to. Lord, I'm, I need your help, Lord. I need you. Because I can really do some stupid things. And I can, oh, I'm so good at self-justification. I'm really good at that. I can, I can do something, and by the time I get through with it, you would think I was just, I was all good, all right. Lord, I need your help. Help me, help me, help me, help me. So that incomprehensibility. Now, let's get to the, let's get to the last one here. In this doxology, we're looking at that. God's eternality. Well, if incomprehensibility made your brain hurt, okay, hang on for this one. God's eternality satisfies us in the sublime hope of Christ's return. That here, now Paul's already said to Timothy, there's background to this, fight the good fight, <clears throat> fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of eternal life. This is something a little nuanced, but importantly, biblical understanding. Eternal life, get this, get this. You get eternal life when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3, 16. You get eternal life. That is, your life is as it should be before God positionally. He accepts you. He's ready to receive you. If you die at that moment, you're in his presence. However, there is over eternal life that we take hold of. There is eternal life by taking hold of that whereby we flourish in that life that God's given to us. He's given us, what is it, 30 plus different uh, beautiful gifts that when we come to him, an inheritance in Christ and a hope of a resurrection body and the hope of the return of Christ. You just go on the things that he gives, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Look at that Ephesians passage, chapter one. He's given us all these wonderful things and so here is eternal life that we live out in the present. But you know, there is an eternal life phase that we've yet to step into. You know what that is? That's eternity with Christ. I was thinking about writing this up in my morning minute real soon because I've been on, I did one recently on eternal judgment. And I got through with that. I didn't get hardly anybody who really said, whoa, that's really good. <laughs> it, it's, well, that's another issue. But it's a serious thing. Eternal destruction. Oh, let's come back to this. Eternality with God. What's it mean? God reveals himself in the Bible as a God who has no beginning or end. He is unlike anything we experience. Whatever we think is inexhaustible is not. Well, we found that out as human beings. You know, we're so cocky as human beings. Well, at one time, you know, we thought the oceans, oh, we'll forever have a food source. It's going to thrive and be with us forever. Not so. We've fished out places. We contaminate the waters. Whatever human beings touch, they have a way of really messing things up. And so, but God is not exhaustible. He is infinite. He's immense with regard to space, infinite with regard to time. And here is God who is eternal. And I saw this and I wrote it down. I don't remember where I got it, but this is not original with me. Though we cannot comprehend eternity, yet we may comprehend 
that there is an eternity. I'm right, trying to give us a soft landing here for a moment. What are we doing here? As though we cannot comprehend the essence of God, what he is, yet we may comprehend that he is. We can get that far. We may understand the notion of his existence, though we cannot understand the infiniteness of his nature. Okay. So let's go a little further with it. God is the God of the past and the future. He's eternal. God was yesterday. He will be today what he was and will be what he is today, tomorrow. Did you know something God doesn't have, by the way? He has no birthdays. And nor should you wake up and say, God, how are you feeling today? I'm not feeling so well. Don't do that silly. God's eternal, changeless. We sang about that. So this is the futility of idolatry. And by the way, Paul is really drawing his bow back and putting some arrows in the bullseye because, see, we'll have to touch on this a little later. You know what? There was Artemis and emperor worship. You know what emperor worship was? That's worship of politics. Worship of the politicians to the ultimate level. So the emperor is God. Oh, this is a, well, I can't stay here, but I must, I must put it in park for a moment. We've got to be careful that we don't get played as Christians. In this civil war we're in, it is a cultural civil war, and it's, it's real, and it's got consequences, and there is a lot of truth that we need to be showing up with, you know, the, how to handle it. I, Lord willing, I'd like to deal with that, that would be later on in November, that <clears throat> we're not to be pacifist, not at all, not theological pacifist. And none of this third wayism. You know what third wayism? I'm going to tell you about that in the next message. This trying to find middle ground. We need to avoid the extremes. Well, there's a little amount of truth there, but be careful. Do you find truth in the middle? You find truth in the Bible. That's where you find it. You don't find it by just trying to adjust uh, political persuasions, whether conservative or liberal. All right, with that said, let's, let's go along with our thought here. So, here is this eternality of God. And there are consequences to that. Let's get, it, let's get the cookies on the bottom shelf quickly. He can be trusted. Yes, God can be trusted. He will remain as he reveals himself to be. We need not fear that the God who once loved us in Christ will somehow change his mind and cease to love us in the future. Thank you, Lord. I needed that. Or that God who created humans as male and female has now developed a non-binary human. Isn't that good? No, it is not. They're male and female. I mean, who would have thought you'd need to kind of reaffirm that this, <laughs> this life? Male and female. God doesn't change. God is inescapable. Not only trustworthy, he is inescapable. If he will not forsake us and leave us, move away, that he will not die, he, we can't get away from him. Uh, Bible quiz. Who tried that? Job did. Excuse me, excuse me. Uh, Jonah tried that, didn't he? That was foolish. I mean, what do you think? Is it a theological twit? Did he, I, think, I, think, I think that uh, Jonah understood the omnipresence of God. But I think he had malformed it in such a way 
that he thought, well, God has manifested his power and his presence in a special way in the temple in Jerusalem. And he, he has chosen to kind of localize some of his glory there. I mean, he twisted it and put it around. And he went down to, went down to the uh, to the pier down there on the Mediterranean, bought a ticket, just got the last seat on the ship. Hey, you know, providence of God. No, there is such thing as satanic providence. That's why you can't take sovereign factors as a proof that it's the right thing. He got on the ship, got paid the price, got on the boat. I don't need to tell you the story. He tried to run from God. God, you can't. And I want to say this to any who may think this. Oh, and I would tell the young people this. I hear these stories, these, these kinds of stories really weigh heavy on me. Did you hear so-and-so? They're gone. They're climbing up Fool's Hill. They're not even sure there is a God. Or they are, um, they think that the church is just old-fashioned and out of step. You know, they've got their arguments that they make. They've been indoctrinated. Oh, you can't run from God, nor can you run from his moral will. And when you attempt to run from God's moral order, you're going to create chaos and misery in your life. Count on it. And just because you're healthy now and you've got the world and the bottle and the lid in your hand, that doesn't mean that you, uh uh, there is, God is inescapable. Oh, and I love this one. He is our eternal home. We got to put that there. We have an eternal home. Unlike the one we have, it takes a lot of time just keeping this, keeping this house up that was built in 1986. I had somebody come by the other day, well, this, 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 this. You know, you go through it. Guess what? There'll be no home repair workers in heaven. <laughs> None. Out of work. Another kind of work. So why is Paul saying all this about God? That's tied up. Why is he saying all this about God? He's saying this to Timothy, and I think I can put it this way. I think this, this comes to mind. I've read this and seen this so many times, it popped in my head. England was being kicked around. It looked like the Nazis were just going to bomb them to oblivion. They were a little island, just a short distance. Well, what had become Nazi land in France and Israel, it, looked, it looked like England was going. And then God raised up in his sovereignty a Winston Churchill. And he became famous for many things. But this one, oh, if you go to the speech, you can hear it. He says, it is, I, I won't try to imitate his voice. Don't do a good job with that anyway. He said, never give in, never give in, never, never, never. And you know what? That rallied a whole nation. <laughs> whole nation stood up strong because of that reminder that they could do it. Where they have to fight on the landing fields, fight on the shores, wherever in the cities, in the, in the, in the countryside, wherever. Never, never, never give in. That's what Paul wants Timothy to think about. Timothy, don't be intimidated. Don't you give up. Don't you tuck and run. Oh, beloved, I say this to you. I said I'm thankful for you. You're here. You need encouragements. I know the special kind of encouragements, and there are those who are not here for understandable reasons who will fit here as well, very well. Don't give up. 
Don't give up. God's got, he's gifted you. He has given you gift and he'll give you the stamina. And here, maybe this would help. I thought of this just this morning. We could do this. I'm in, I'm in on this assignment as, as you are, what I'm going to say. If we could just take a little piece of paper and a card. This is an old card I've had around. I used it for some other reasons here. That's another story, but uh, this one is, uh, could do this. Write down on a small piece of paper or a card, you put it in your wallet, you put it on your person so that you can just readily see it. And that one thing each day you can let other people know about who God is. Just take these four, uh, these four uh, aspects of this doxology. I just said, whoa, whoa, I'm not going to talk to that lady in the cash out, check, check out lane about the incomprehensibility of God. That's on you. <laughs> it's doable. So that's your assignment. What can you say? That God is holy. Think of ways, think of ways these, can, these, these truths about God can be put out maybe to an unsaved person. Yes, yes, in the gospel. Here, here's where we can do that. Uh, I want to encourage you again. Let's all do this. I need to do better about this. These little gospels, John's, they're very attractive little things. It's a great track. You know, it really has good authority behind it. And uh, take, get some gospels of John's or some track or some way and say, God, if you enable me to take one person this week to speak about you and the gospel of Jesus Christ. One person, could you bring, and give me this, I have to do this because I, I, I can really be stupid. I can, somebody can just walk right through my life and then I later on say, what an open door, hello. And Lord, help me to, to be more, uh, have better alacrity, more nimbleness, more anticipation. And I, I, could we do that? If you could take a piece of paper and every, each day, try to write down something you can do to flesh out, present to others with what is said in this doxology.